0: Hey everybody, I'm Jonathan, I'm Jeremy, and this is The Evangelicals. So this episode is a part two of the episode we, uh, what do you say, we didn't shoot the episode recorded Recorded (laughs) last week, uh, talking about the COVID situation and the church. And I think that today we're going to be talking about truth and the subjective nature of truth in COVID-19 culture, right?
1: Yeah, it's hard to know what to believe, what not to believe, which numbers to, to believe, which numbers are inaccurate, who's reporting what, how they're reporting it. But then I think it bleeds into the church when we talk about what does it mean to to believe this. We have a lot of prominent evangelical leaders saying things that that sound good but is it really true about who we should be as the people of God and what that looks like and so I think it's just in the midst of all of this truth seems to be something that's that's a bit on the fringe for for whatever reason and and like I said just knowing what to believe and what to, what to look at and how do we as the people of God navigate this time I guess in the middle of where we find ourselves
0: and I feel like we should just admit that it's very difficult these days to distinguish between what is like the church and what is culture because we we just are so culturally minded and we're so tied up in and invested in political and cultural conversations that are going on one of the the situation recently in the last couple weeks that i think demonstrates the subjective nature of truth, in my opinion, was the CDC report that came out a couple of weeks ago, stating that somewhere in the 90% 94 or 96% of those who died of COVID-19 had some sort of like pre critical um, pre existing condition. Okay. And so that report comes out. And after that report came out, I read two diametrically opposed versions of the report. (laughs) <laughs> that we're coming from, coming from just different points of view telling me that this is true. So um, one point of view was this: what this report means is that 96 or 94... I'm sorry that I don't have the numbers in front of me. One of those two percentiles. All of those people that had pre-critical tini- conditions, critical conditions, preconditions, they did not die of COVID. They just had COVID and it was kind of slapped on their death. All of them. And then you have... So after that, then Dr. Fauci came back and said, no, all of these people died of COVID. Like, that was the cause of their death. So, and what's what's also so interesting to me, both of those versions of the story are so polarized. Yeah. My hunch is that probably somewhere in the middle is the truth. I mean, that's like my hunch, just being somebody that, you know, is, you know, aware of, you know, kind of how viruses attack my own body and you know the the situation in the world and being somewhat educated it just seems to me like probably somewhere in the middle is the truth but this is where we are culturally right now is that you get a story and you believe either the left or the right you believe one of two extremes I, realize left and right means political things but it's and but it is it is so it is also politicized and the one of the i mean that the the cdc report to me it just demonstrates that like the cdc is trying to be in some ways transparent or just communicate some information and it's hijacked they don't get to just they don't get to just tell you um the the popular stories told by news outlets take the story and they twist it toward their end Nobody's just talking about what the CDC report is saying. And and that's what's happening times a million in culture right now.
1: And I think what's hard is if you want to find an opinion that resonates with what you believe about said topic, like you can find it somewhere on the internet. And, And unfortunately what happens once again is there is, doesn't seem to be this middle, it doesn't seem to be a, hey, no matter what people are saying, we know this is true about said topic. And, 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 and it happens in the church as well. And I think that as we journey through this time, it becomes harder and harder to even believe or to have a thought about how Jesus would respond in the midst of all of this, about how Jesus would react. And, you know, people are like, well, they had pre-existing conditions. Well, part of my heart says, well, shouldn't we as Christians be for those people as well and if us taking precautions and, and doing these measures that we are asked to do helps those people, isn't that enough to, to potentially do it? and because where the other thought might be well they were gonna die anyway or they were on a, they were sick anyways. so we shouldn't be doing all of this. They should just be put into a colony or I mean that's a that's an extreme case, but they should just take care of themselves they should socially they should distance they should. Stay out of the public sector or whatever the case you want to say. Or, you know they shouldn't go to the store or restaurants because they already have these preconditions that would potentially make COVID worse for them. So that's where the the, the balance is, and I think it's hard to to be um, objective in the midst of this time because there's just so many voices. And if I want to find a voice that agrees with my perspective or my opinion, I can go find it, and then I can just push that. To the nth degree, without trying to say, but what is what's the best response as followers of Jesus in the midst of what this looks like? Even in the church, there doesn't seem to be this middle ground, this understanding of of really trying to love others and love God um, in a consistent way. Uh, it's hard to find, I guess, that voice in the midst of it all.
0: Yeah, I mean, w- one of the one of the issues that I'm that I'm seeing more and more is that really the news. The stories that we hear about in the news and in journalism they really do have kind of an an ethical end they have a moral bent to them so I mean and I think you just demonstrated you know the I think the probably the more conservative story out there would be these people had pre-existing conditions they were going to die anyway why are we compromising our economy for their sake and that sounds that sounds very non compassionate because in the sense it is but it also it also recognizes like the unknown um that there really are um in our own community there have been people that um have been labeled as um a covid death where their family members are saying like you know we didn't even know that Covid wasn't even a part of it. Like they were in their their last days, you know. And so there, there there is so much there is so much nuance, you know. The other the other kind of, and so I think that the conservative you know, side would say, you know, well, we have this report, so life should just carry on as normal. And then the um, the more um, uh, probably whatever you would call Dr. Fauci, because this is also kind of funny. Like he gets labeled like a super liberal, but he's also like President Trump's guy. I mean, it's just very confusing. I don't. I know. mean, he's
1: worked for the last five presidents. Yeah. Both sides of the aisle. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: So, and he says, and he says, you know, that they all, they all died of it. And it's kind of the, the, the ethical implication for, you know, for everyone is, you know, we still need to be taking this seriously. We still need to be abiding by all of, all of the mandates, you know, and, but the way that the stories are told, they are implying a particular way that, that we ought to live our lives. And one of the things that i've been thinking a lot about in the church is that somehow in the development of evangelical christianity in america we've gotten the gospel to be a story that doesn't have much implication on the way people live their lives it's our story is more about salvation after we die you know and and so people are leaving the church right now and part of the reason that people are leaving the church is because they hear polarized stories in in the media in the public media that actually have import on their lives and they're gravitating toward those toward those narratives those polarizing narratives and they're gravitating towards groups of groups of people that are active in many different ways because in my, in my opinion the church has become passive in an authoritative sense of saying this is how we as the church are going to live and going to operate and this is what we are going to do um, i know that i make people very anxious when i talk like this because you know um there's legalism has a very bad reputation in the church in america you don't want to be legalistic you know (laughs) that's like that's like the worst thing you could possibly be but there's a new form of legalism springing up in America these days and it's this polarized social political um, uh, form of ideology that is shaping the way that people live in very terrible ways and the church uh, needs needs to not just react to culture but needs to recover the part of the church that is this this politic that is very different than the politics of the world. Stanley Hauerwas writes an incredible book that I would highly recommend called After Christendom, where the thesis of the book, spoiler alert, is that the kingdom of God is proposes a politics that is very different than um, the liberal, self-gratifying politic that is popular today. And by, by liberal, he doesn't mean Democrat he means like conservative and Democrat, because both conservatives and Democrats are trying to answer the question, how can I be the most happy? Like, what is the, what is um, what am I entitled to? And they answer the question of personal entitlements very differently. And that's why we have the two political platforms. And, and Stanley Hauerwas would say that the church has a very opposite politic than either political party. But honestly, um, I think that Hauerwas is right. But in many of, in my own church, I don't know that I look at us, you know, as a people and say, man, we are just living radically different than the world right now. Our morals and ethics, because of the story that we're following, is shaping us to be, you know, radically different. I'm not just trying to be disparaging, Jeremy. It's, this sounds very, it feels like I've taken a, like a negative turn or something here. But this is, you're t- you you. know, we wanted to talk about truth today, and truth what you believe to be true impacts
1: the way you live your life. I don't know that you I think if we really grasp, I think what you're getting at, it does seem potentially to be hopeless, but I actually think if you think about it, it could be hopeful that that the church could be a different voice. The church could be a third way or a different way. you know, the beginning in acts the the church was just called the way. the way. and and so to me, it's it's to say, We're so politicized, but there is a different way to live, a different kingdom to live for, a different whatever polity to live for that could actually be the hope of the world. And I think, you know, Paul said that that Christ in us is the hope of glory. And so to me, it's it's, but I think the hardest part is to recognize that we are being co-opted even in the church with a, a different narrative about how we should organize ourselves and how we should think and how we should live. And I think it does get to this understanding of, of we are just selfish people and and we tend to, to side with or think in agreement with things that, that benefit me rather than understanding that the polity of the church was always for the benefit of of others. And as as I am serving, as I am making sure that the other is taken care of, then I do get benefit from that. But it's not because I'm going to get everything that I want. I'm going to get everything that I think I deserve. It's going to be in the serving. God then transforms my heart to understand that that is the greatest good. Uh, We started watching, binge watching a show, uh, my wife and I. And it's interesting. It's called the Good Place, and um, it's just fascinating. And I'm not sure a whole lot of conservative people would would necessarily love the show on some level because it just deals a lot with the uh, the end, the afterlife, and what that looks like. But the the premise of the show is um, they make a mistake, and somebody who should have gone to the bad place actually goes to the good place, and. And the the whole premise of the reason she should have gone to the bad place because she was such a selfish person when she was here and didn't care about other people, didn't care how her life affected other people. It was just all about her and making sure she got what she wanted. And you you mentioned before we came on that there's there's a um, a translation, a new translation of the Bible that seems to play into that selfish. Um, this is all about you and getting what you deserve and getting what is coming to you on some level. And, uh, and that it's really picking up some steam and some popularity among evangelical Christians. Um, you know, and talk about that yeah, a little yeah, yeah. bit? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. it just plays into this whole idea well, so that life is about me and not about others. And, and yeah, what that one, looks of,
0: like. one of my great concerns in the church is, it's kind of this, the idea of authority where does authority come from because in a free church society uh, martin luther martin luther was right in lifting up the idea in peter's epistle of the priesthood of all believers the the church is not supposed to be strictly a polity of hierarchy that is not that is not the um uh how should i say the the point of the church is not church polity That's not the point. However, uh, my Roman Catholic friends would argue that as long as there has been a church, there has been a hierarchy, right? Jesus says, Peter, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And Paul talks a lot about some are called to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, right? These, there are actually like offices in the church of people that have a particular kind of authority. Well, What happens kind of now 500 we're 502 years after the reformation is that we we've really taken this idea of the priesthood of all believers to say no one has ultimate authority because everybody has authority Mm. Martin Luther he said priesthood of all believers he also said sola scriptura this is very fascinating when you have when you have no authority vetting Who's translating the Bible? And we're only basing our faith on the Bible. People that translate the Bible begin to be the ones that have authority in a system that has no hierarchy. And this, in my opinion, has begun to happen probably more um frequently. I think we're gonna start seeing this happen more and more frequently in our lifetime. So when I was younger, Eugene Peterson came out with the message. I love the message. I'm not bashing the message. The message is really cool. Uh, Eugene Peterson's a very pastoral guy. A lot of people have hated the message because it's not a literal translation. The thing that I like about the message is Eugene Peterson says this is not a literal translation of the Bible. And Eugene Peterson was a biblical scholar. <laughs> yeah, no,
1: that's <laughs> like legitimately. A legitimate not, biblical not... like knew the Greek.
0: Yeah, and 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 there are people, you know, there are stuffy scholars would say, you know, someone, some some, you know, scholar he was. But he really, his concern was a pastoral concern of giving giving people kind of handles to dig into the Bible. And he saw what he was doing as kind of like a front door into the Bible. You would kind of get interested and then you would read, you know, more seriously the other texts. So there's a new translation that's just recently come out claiming to be... A translation that gives clearly in English the intended meaning of the text so they don't they admit that they're not a literal translation but what they claim is that they are giving you the meaning of the initial of the initial text in current language here's the problem with language and I'm not trying to bog people down with scholarship here um the the problem it is impossible to separate religion, faith, identity from language. You can't do it. you can't do it. Um, there are some words that just have a particular meaning that you can't take away. And this is this is kind of the the battle with translating the Bible into different languages that scholars get together and talk about, you know, how are we going to translate these ideas um, that are very, you know, Mediterranean Sea in the you know uh, hellenistic greek society how are we going to translate them to modern day english and so the approach has been historically over the last 50 years to kind of make it simple to give kind of the simple that in my opinion if you look at that kind of the nrsv if you look at the niv these are they're they're not super complex because what they're trying to do is they're just trying to give you the concepts in English and keep the etymology of words. So like disciple it's it, we still use the word disciple, right? We don't say um, follower or apprentice, even though those are words that maybe more people understand what they are. We keep disciple because it is the word that means disciple. And like, if you want to, if you want to know what it means, you need to do a little bit of work. Like this isn't your book. It's the Bible. Like, you you know, Okay, so anyway, but what's happening now is because we are in such a free church uh, society and people aren't even going to church anymore. People are just, they're going online and they're trying to find like fresh, you know, religious experiences. There's a couple that has translated a version called the Passion Version. And what, like I said, what the Passion Version has done is they're claiming that they are translating the meaning of the text into contemporary language but the thing is they're introducing ideas that are relatively new to an ancient text so in the, the psalmist for this is one of the examples the psalmist says I wait for the Lord my soul waits that's the verse the passion translation says I'm waiting on the Lord to receive my breakthrough my breakthrough is not a biblical concept at all It's a 21st century North American, some would argue, kind of prosperity gospel concept, right? Um, But we don't have an authority in the church anymore kind of vetting whether or not these things can come out. These people aren't going to be thrown in jail or prosecuted for changing scripture and telling a bunch of people this is what the text means. Because we we don't have an authority on truth anymore in society that is kind of this hierarchical thing. You know, the separation of church and state is is kind of a nice idea. It's a quintessentially American idea, you know. Um and in many ways it's a very good thing. But there is no in a society where the church has no authority, you know, to um to legislate even even church things, who can who can translate scripture? We just have a complete uh, kind of free for all, as far as uh, as far as like truth is concerned, and 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 um, for someone, someone has. To, there is no one. Uh, every everyone is competing that their truth is true, hmm. right? And so we just have this massive plethora of people claiming to be telling the truth, and many of them are lying, which is interesting. I mean, I'm not much of an end times scholar. But one of the things that continually comes up in end times prophecy is that there will be false prophets, that people will be perverting the word of Christ. There will be the the spirit of the Antichrist saying things that are anti to what Christ would have said, right? And I mean, this is just going on. It's going on like crazy in the church and in
1: popular Christianity. Which I think begs the question, how do we know what's true and what isn't true? (laughs) How do we know... And I think this is something Wass, you mentioned Stanley Wass does really well. Uh, People like um, Jürgen Moltmann, a German theologian, people that that N.T. Wright talks a lot about this. And, And I think that it just begs when Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And it's not that Jesus was blocking our way to God, but if we are going to understand who God is, And how God would respond and how God chose to be present through Jesus, but also chooses to be present through us, like it has to go back to Jesus. And Moltmann says, hey, the the true test of Christianity is the cross. And and the way we know something is Christian is if you can play it against the cross and what that meant for us in the world, that's how we know if it really is Christian. And and once again, Harawas does a great job of coming back to the Sermon on the Mount again and again and again. That guy loves and gets his polity of what it means to be a follower in the Beatitudes and in this, these sayings and this sermon that Jesus um, gave. And so I think that the way that we can understand what truth is, is does it match up with who Jesus was? Uh, I, I saw, I've been seeing a lot of tweets that talk about, I saw this one that says, a lot of Christians love the apostle Paul more than they love Jesus (laughs) because they love the way Paul talks about doctrine and the way Paul talks about things, the way the church should be ordered, but it's detached from potentially how Jesus lived and who Jesus was. And the only way we can really understand the apostle Paul and what he was trying to say is read it through the lens of who Jesus was and how Jesus chose to live here. That Paul's whole, Thought was he wanted to be like Jesus. His whole reason for for writing these letters to these specific churches was trying to get them to understand better about how why Jesus came and who Jesus was, and then in essence what it causes us, who it causes us to be, and how we should live. So when Jesus says, I think when he says I am I am the truth, I think that we as Christians, when we're living in this world where so many people even once again, prominent evangelical leaders in our country are saying two different things at the same time about where we find ourselves and what we're going through. Yeah, The way that we truly understand how we are to live and who we are to be, and we're having all these different translations of scripture um, is once again, does it match up with who Jesus was and how he chose to interact with people, how he chose to conduct himself how he chose to teach the disciples about who they were to be and what it meant to be the people of God. Um, and, and so to me, we got to get back once again. And like I said, Wass points to this in a huge way that the way we view the world is not... The rich people are the ones that, that God is blessing. It's actually the poor in spirit. And and in Luke, it actually just says the poor are the ones that are blessed by right. God. and 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 it's not the one who gets the promotion that God has somehow blessed them that they got this promotion at work. Although I think God works in those things. But the way that we know the kingdom is breaking out. Or it's actually the ones who mourn are the ones who are going to be comforted and the ones who are the peacemakers and seeking peace are the children of God. And so as we journey through this time of where truth just seems to be very shaky and and on a very thin layer of ice, the way I think that we as the church get through this and don't lose our voice and don't lose our calling as the church is we have to, if it we have to keep getting back to Jesus. We have to keep getting back to Jesus. We have to keep getting back to Jesus that the disciples are like, show us what God's like. And Jesus is like, look at me. This is exactly who he is. Uh, There's a guy named Brian Zahn, a pastor. And um, he has a quote that says, we didn't always know what God's like, but now we do because we see it in Jesus. And I butchered the quote. It's not exactly like that, but the essence is we didn't always know what God was like. Um, We were trying to figure out who he was, but in Jesus, now we see a perfect picture of what god is like
0: one of the interesting things about jesus is that jesus never wrote down a sentence for us like jesus jesus did not control his own narrative he didn't control his own story one of the things that i see us doing in the church in north america right now is being really really concerned with and i, I mean i just did it on the podcast earlier by trashing the passion translation which i will continue <laughs> i will continue to kind of like support that stance i I just think it's i think it's very detrimental i don't i don't think it's going to help your enhance your devotional life at all personally it's just a personal opinion folks um but what we do in christianity is we worry so much about the narrative what we do individually we're worried so much about like our our facebook profile and we worry about controlling the story but really honestly one of the most christian things that you can do in following the way of jesus is to not worry what people are saying about you and just to be ministering to the person who is in front of you. I'm I'm very anxious about the move in the church to online church, like thinking that in some way we are doing service to the world by broadcasting worship services. I don't personally see anything in our ecclesiology that could be probably more anti-Jesus in the sense of, uh, Jesus, a, a, a fundamental component of Jesus's ministry was hospitality, yeah. was being with people. And he railed against religious people that would make their worship a show. Like, that's just something that he railed against. So, we have in North America shut down meeting together and are broadcasting worship services. And like for me, I'm like, you guys, where is the cogn like, can we just admit the cognitive dissonance here? Like this is this is very this is very much not uh this this non meeting, non assembling, worship online version of Christianity is so foreign to the heart of the gospel. And I'm not uh, you know, some people would say, you know, well what else should we do? You know? Like, um, I don't have all the answers to those questions. And the thing is I'm paid to do, you know, the online circus. And so I do it. Um, and you're like, you know, that can be a completely different podcast. I think it was Micah, the prophet who like sold himself, uh, to, um, there's an amazing, there's an amazing, um, story in the old Testament about, uh, uh, he was given like 10 shekels in a shirt. There's a band called 10 shekel, 10 shekel shirt. Yeah. I think there was a, um, where Micah kind of was like, yeah, "I'll I'll be your I'll be your priest if you you know give me somewhere to stay, you know, and to live in." I mean, honestly, as a as a theologian, sometimes I wonder, I wonder to myself how much I'm
1: selling my soul to the system. And I, last podcast, we said we would do this more if people paid us to. T-
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's right. That's right. I mean, I'm just I'm just putting myself out there as a complete sellout. Like, you know what, you guys, I've got three kids, and uh, um, you know. I have a wife that would like to paint some walls, so you know, uh, yeah. Get a I new do couch. It. There's very little I would uh, not do for money these days. Sorry, no. no, no. It's I mean, it's it's indicative of what's going on in my own heart. I recognize it. I'm just kind of laying myself out there. But but I do have this like incredible sense of angst that in our in our church and society right now we are still invested in like maintaining um i don't know some some semblance of like religious practice but at the end of the day it really is very divorced from the other aspects of our lives Uh, uh one of the things we we had a group that gathered on sunday night it was really really lovely and i actually i actually lifted up acts two um where it says all the apostles were together and they had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to each other as they had need. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the breaking of bread and to prayer. Um, And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Kind of the implied element of that paragraph is that the church's fellowship with one another and generosity with one another and hospitality with one another became so attractive to the world that people came to christ because they were caring for one another and we really um have kind of sold our soul to the attractive model of church in the latter part of the 20 20th century in the early part of the 21st century asking ourselves the question how do we get people that aren't in our fellowship to come to church that's kind of like the big question that people ask that are especially denominational leaders but i think that the question that we ought to be asking right now particularly is how are we caring for each other yeah How are we loving each other? Is every widow in your church being cared for, being visited upon? How are the orphans that are, you know, the people, the people whose parents, you guys right now, like people are getting divorced left and right. The stress of COVID-19 is like, is doing things to people's relationships and psyche. And I don't know that, um, uh, and it's, it's the case in the church also, you know, how are we caring for our own marriages how are we uh, i think that the church would do well right now to really just do an, a self inventory you know maybe even put a pause on like the polish of whatever we're putting online and just reevaluate the fellowship and ask the question like are we are we even doing the basic things anymore that the
1: church was called to do reminds me of the old testament again and again and again where especially the minor prophets where they say, away with your religious festivals. And um, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And I think again and again and again, the people were making it about, well, if we do this, then we're good. And I think God had more interest in, well, how does this play out in your everyday life? How are you taking care of those that need to be taken care of? And if it's just about getting together to get together so that you can feel good about yourself and, and feel like you checked your box off that you needed to check off. Now, I do believe that those assemblies can push us to those things and call us to those things and encourage us and to the discipleship and to the taking care of the orphan, the fatherless and the widow. But if they become about the assembly themselves, I think that it's missing the point of who Jesus is calling us to be on a continual basis. And so I don't know that it's an either or, I think it's a both and, but how are we cultivating the hearts of our people and the lives of our people when we are together to be that different group of people that is attractive, not because we have, uh, you know, have the, the lights and the smoke machine and the, the lasers or whatever we have in our worship. That's not the reason that they're attracted to us. They're attracted to us because of our love one for another. And I think Jesus even said, they'll know you're my disciples, not by the way you assemble together, but by your love one for another. And it seems like how,
0: I guess my question would be there. uh, How do you love one another if you're not together?
1: Exactly right. So, like I said, I think that I think a lot, and this is probably going to be a big generalization but the reason people are attracted to a lot of the big churches around is because they have the latest and the greatest.
0: Ah, I see what you're saying. Kind of distinguishing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This Keep, keep going.
1: So, well, just, just that once again, it's not that the assembly is bad in and of itself, but what should be attracting people to our community, like you said, is not because we have the best band in town or we have the best light show in town or we have the best preacher in town although i think those things can be used beneficially for his kingdom but at the end of the day the reason people should want to be a part of us is because we love one another and we take care of each other and we take care of those who who need to be taken care of on a continual basis and once again that goes back to that whole thing that when jesus says i'm the truth I think that that's what he's getting at is they will know you're my disciples not because you have the glitz and the glamour or you're going to promise the promotion or you're going to promise but actually in the midst of real life people know that you're going to be there for them when they're when their spouse is going through cancer you're going to be there helping them clean their house and take care of their kids when their grandparent is in hospice you're going to be there to visit and you're going to journey with them through those times when when the mortgage is when they're financially strapped and, and they, they don't know how they're gonna make it, they know they can come to a church and a place that's gonna take care of them and make sure their kids have what they need for school or for whatever. And and so to me that's the part, the piece that should be attracting them and that's that acts two, I think, is what was so attractive, is they saw that that when they had a, a community member in need, they surrounded them and they loved them and they wanted to be a part of a, a community of faith that really did love each other and care for each other. And so to me, when Jesus says, that's the truth that we're after, that's what we're going after. Not, not all over the place about all the things going on, but the truth is, once again, it's the poor in spirit. It's the the, the meek. It's the people who are saying, hey, I'm here for you because God's love compels me to be in your life in your time of need, in your time of sorrow, in your time of grief, in your time of pain, in your time of suffering, we journey through those times together as the church. And that's what, to me, um, should compel others to want to be a part of our gathering, not because um, we're the best show in town. And that sounds very judgmental. No, it's, but I, it's I, really
0: good. I think it actually is in conversation with the, one of the parables that Jesus told. He said, the kingdom of God is like a man who prepared a wedding banquet. And he invited all the people to come to the wedding banquet, but one by one, people sent him negative RSVPs. Busy. Yep, I uh, got a. I just, I just bought a new piece of property. and need to go check it out on the day that you're having your wedding. <sighs> you know, what, what are some of the other reasons? There are a couple excuses that people gave why they couldn't be there. And one by one, you know the the, the guests didn't come. And so Jesus says, you know, so what is the What does the guy do? He's wanting to fill his, you know, his house for the wedding. He wants to have a party. So he goes out into the lanes and into the alleys and he gathers up like the homeless people and he brings them all to the wedding banquet. I hate that parable. I hate that parable because the parable essentially says that like in the kingdom of God, you're going to, the people that you want to be there are probably not going to show up.
1: I hate that parable. Gonna have a million other things that are going to vie for their attention. And the thing is, like in the status church of
0: today and like popular evangelicalism, like I want to give those people, I want the cool people in town to come to my church. Yeah. But the thing is, especially in COVID culture, I'm finding they have better things to do. Yep. They got other stuff going on, they got higher priorities. Like honestly, like I'm just realizing more and more that although. I am called to missionally chase after people like Jesus, you know, following the example of the parable of the shepherd and the lost coin and the lost son. I'm also called to kind of represent that's the story of the parable of the of the um, the one who goes after those others that that have nothing else going on. I mean, I mean, I just think about Jesus' own ministry. He's walking by the sea. He says to He says to a um, fisherman, come follow me. He says to a tax collector, Matthew, hey, come on. Leave this nonsense of working for the man. Come follow me. And the people that followed Jesus and started the church were people who didn't really have much going on. Um, This is why the rich man walks away sad. Yeah, he had a lot of wealth, but, like, his wealth kind of set up for him a particular kind of, like, status and lifestyle that he wanted to maintain in following Jesus, and Jesus is like, dude, honestly, like, if you want to follow me, it's gonna to have to look different, man. Mm-hmm. You can't you can't have your cake and eat it too in this particular
1: situation. And um, and can I just the people that Jesus called were not the people that you would want to come to your church. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And that's that's why I said I don't like the parable exactly, yeah. man. Yeah, exactly. And so we're we're needing to kind of wrestle with what does it even mean to be a gathering of the church that has integrity in COVID nineteen masks yeah right that's a conversation too you know how are we doing you know the public gathering thing but I'm just talking even just like who we have left like who's actually coming to church like this has been a shake up you know um, you know of of attendance and commitment and all this type of thing you know uh, churches generally I'm just riffing generally Jeremy we need to take this to a conclusion give us some good thoughts
1: I I keep hoping and praying that that this time will be a time of of reimagination, a time of recreativity, a time of rethinking, a time of that we can say hey, we can put aside some of those things that we thought were so important and really reimagine what we believe church should be. And once again, if we get on the other side of this, I think I said it last week, and we just go back to doing all the things that we were doing before without really taking time to stop and say, what What do we think? What What is the call of Jesus? What is the truth that we are calling people to? To stop for just a moment and say, and if that's the truth, if that's what this kingdom looks like, then how do we organize? How do we set ourselves up? How do we... How do we worship together to bring about that kingdom, to bring about that imagination, to bring about that purpose and plan and will for us, for the people that call our churches their church home, and for people who live in our communities who are just begging for meaning and purpose and hope and restoration and forgiveness and reconciliation. And um, so I'm hoping that as we seek what really is true and what truth is, and if we find it in Jesus, that we might... Form and organize ourselves to let that be the thing that leads and guides and directs us.
0: The Evangelicals Podcast is recorded at Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio.